Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Winkup, who will enlighten us on the topic of systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE. For a simple surgeon like me, that's too many syllables. Chris first completed a Bachelor of Science degree in Biomedical Sciences, followed by his medical degrees at the University of Brighton and Sussex Medical School here in the UK. He's now a consultant rheumatologist at King's College Hospital in London, specialising in SLE and vasculitis, and is undertaking a PhD at the same institution, which we shall talk about. The Good Doctor has been awarded multiple prizes, including the Royal Society of Medicine's COVAX Travelling Fellowship Award and the Imperial Award for Quality of Teaching at Northwick Park Hospital, also in London. Dr. Winkup has published numerous articles, abstracts and book chapters, and is on the editorial board for multiple medical journals. Further, he's on the British Society for Paediatric and Adolescent Rheumatology Committee, and is chair of the British Rheumatologists in Training Society. He's also involved with Arthritis Research UK, where he acts as a content reviewer and media spokesman. Chris is a huge football fan and supports his hometown team, Norwich City. I remember the League Cup final where my team, Tottenham Hotspur, put one over the Canaries. Those were happy days. Well, for me anyway. Chris and his wife have two Dushans, uh, Chip and Frank. I really want to know how they got those names. He's the only, those are big names for little dogs. He's, he's the only doctor in his family. And interestingly, most of his family work in brewing. And while I certainly enjoy a good beer, I think we're all glad that Dr. Chris Winkup chose to go into medicine. Chris, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's, it's great to be here. And thank you very much for that kind introduction. Well, I have to ask you, first of all, Chip and Frank, I named all my dogs for, for foods. So I had, uh, I like Indian food. So I had Chutney and Bhaji <laughs> at one point. And then I had a dog named Haggis, who was wonderful. <laughs> so where did Chip and Frank come from? Uh, well, it's very much food based as well. Um, with them being sausage dogs, we thought we would have Chip uh, the Chipolata and Frank the Frankfurter. So uh, we, if we get a, a third dog, I, I think we'll have to find another brand of sausage to name them after. Yes, I, I actually thought that's what it might be. And I thought, oh, God, I'll get into trouble if I say that. <laughs> so what, what took you into medicine, specifically rheumatology and the, your area of interest, rather than brewing? And do we, would we know your family's brand of beer? So my dad works for a large brewery. Um, so he very much is the, the man uh, fixing things for the company in his van, traveling around uh, and sorting out pipes and delivering beer. My brother then went into the same field and set up a very small brewery, uh, which is, is local in Norfolk, but is potentially going to grow. Then uh, my sister's husband actually joined the brewery that my dad worked at as well so yeah there's a there's a strong history in the family of brewing but it was never never something that, that I was drawn to uh, I'm very happy to to try the beers that that are made by their various companies uh, but medicine was always my interest from a very young age thinking how I got into this you know it's, it's slightly unusual um, uh, no one in my family had been to university before so it was a new experience for all of us when I decided to apply for medicine 
I think the thing that pulled me into medicine initially was I was quite keen with sport. I, I played a lot of football in my youth, but was never really good enough to be a footballer. So I was interested in musculoskeletal injuries and things like that. And, and there was a point where in the early days of medical school, I was thinking about becoming an orthopedic surgeon. I was a little known fact is I was president of uh, the medical school surgical society for a very brief period. But interestingly, when I spent a bit of time doing orthopedics, uh, it, it was encounters with patients with these systemic multi-system illnesses that really drew my attention. Uh, and that's where I kind of found my love for rheumatology. So I was one of those slightly unusual cases where I left medical school knowing I wanted to be a rheumatologist, knowing that lupus was very interesting and something I wanted to pursue further, uh, and knowing I wanted to do a PhD in the subject. Uh, so yeah, I was slightly unusual in, in that regard, but rheumatology is been something that's fascinating me for for many years now let's dig into that and let's start with the phd you're currently working on that investigating abnormal iron metabolism and mitochondrial dysfunction in lupus and we're going to come back to mitochondria a bit later but tell us a bit more about your interest in this topic specifically and what your your research has discovered thus far Sure. So this actually started off as a very, very clinical project. I knew I wanted to do some research in lupus and I was keen to do some lab work as I'd enjoyed that before. But this actually was born out of a clinical question that we often face when seeing patients with lupus, and that relates to fatigue. So we know that 90% of patients with lupus report fatigue to be their worst symptom, which as a doctor is always very surprising because we think people would be more concerned about arthritis or rash or kidney problems. But fatigue seemed to be a major unmet need for patients with lupus. This symptom is also really poorly understood. So we don't know why patients have such high levels of fatigue. Uh, and also many of the treatments that we use are not particularly effective in, in managing fatigue. So that was the clinical question that patients were posing a lot when I was seeing them in, in clinic. And so we decided to develop a research project to try and find out why that might be the case. Uh, some of the initial research showed that there was a correlation between a marker of what we suggested to be functional iron deficiency and fatigue. And so we then started to try and explore how iron deficiency or a lack of bioavailable iron may in turn result in fatigue. And, and in my case, we looked at immunological fatigue. Obviously, as everyone is taught at medical school, the key powerhouse of the cell is the mitochondria. Uh, and interestingly, the, the iron is vital in mitochondrial respiration. So I produced the hypothesis that maybe patients had a lack of bioavailable iron that was impairing their mitochondria from functioning properly and therefore energy was not being produced, uh, in particular in immune cells, which we know are a main problem. Uh, with, with lupus patients. And so this work has been going on for a few years now. Uh, we're finding that immunologically, there is certainly high levels of immune fatigue. Now we're trying to link back as to whether we could potentially use treatments to augment this and whether this will actually improve the symptom of fatigue in patients with lupus. Yeah, I'm going to come back to mitochondria and the concept of fatigue, which I personally find utterly fascinating. So Let's go back to basics, though. For those who may not know much about SLE, can you explain what the disease is? Maybe starting with me, because I do remember the malar or butterfly rash and actually have a friend who has SLE. And I think I learned more about it from her. And she's actually an accountant. So there you go. And as I recall, it can just appear. It can appear in response to sunshine. I don't know if my memory is correct. How common is SLE? I'll tell you what. Give us a like SLE course 101. 
Sure. I mean, I will try to be brief, as many of my juniors and colleagues will say that I will often go on for many hours talking about lupus. So I'll try and give you the uh, the key highlights here. Your memory is very much correct. So so a malar or butterfly rash that's photosensitive or comes out in sunlight is one of the common presentations of lupus. Um, as you mentioned, um, that you have a, a friend with lupus as well. 90% of patients with lupus are female. Um, uh, so there's a marked female predominance of the disease. Uh, and also there are a number of possible triggers such as sunlight. Uh, and we're just beginning to understand how, how that occurs. In terms of your question of how common is lupus, we say in the UK, it, it's about one in a thousand. People often throw around the term. It's probably the most common rare disease. So uh, it is something that we see quite a lot here in, in our clinic where we specialize in it. We have many hundreds of patients with lupus. But, but when I'm speaking to colleagues in general practice, you know, one in a thousand patients may mean that they only have a handful of patients with lupus. And the important thing is that we that we detect those people very quickly, get a diagnosis and get people on treatment. Now, in terms of the way that lupus presents clinically, uh, well, we, it's a systemic autoimmune condition, so it can affect pretty much any organ within the body. Uh, as, as clinicians, the ones that we worry about mainly for more severe lupus is where the kidneys are involved, which happens in about half of patients with lupus. Also, there are cases where the lungs and the heart and the brain can become inflamed. And, and so these are the more serious ends of the spectrum. But the symptoms can be very, very debilitating. And many of the patients I see in clinic report the difficulty with this being an invisible illness whereby they have many symptoms of the disease that may not be obviously apparent to friends or family and this can cause uh, a number of problems in particular for a misunderstood condition like lupus. Now why lupus occurs is a bit of a mystery and that's why we're doing a lot of research in this area and we've gained a lot of understanding over the last 20 years or so. What we think is there's a breakdown in the way that the immune system works Many of the papers that I write say it's a disease associated with autoantibodies directed against nuclear components. And in simple terms, when I'm describing this to my trainees, I'm saying that there is damage to cells, and that may be damage from ultraviolet radiation or sunlight, that then those damaged cells are not cleared properly by the immune system. So there's impaired clearance. And then there's lots of things hanging around that the immune system will then attack, such as the internal organelles of cells, commonly the nucleus. And that's how many patients are diagnosed with lupus through anti-nuclear and anti-double-strand DNA antibodies. But there's still much to learn. And as we learn more, there's hopefully going to be better treatments available uh, and more targeted treatments as we start to pick apart some of these interesting immune mechanisms. Well, so mentioning immunity is like <laughs> the perfect segue. By the way, that's that was very concise. And, uh, you know, I, I had the same charge level at me by my juniors. And I would say, well, it's because I love what I do. And if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? Absolutely. So dig a bit deeper into the role of immunometabolism in the pathogenesis of SLE. You talked about uh, cells being cleared by the immune system. So expand on that, if you would. Yeah, sure. So um, in terms of cell, so cell debris being cleared by the immune system. So it, it was something proposed a number of years back called the waste disposal hypothesis of lupus, whereby uh, dead cells are not cleared away properly by the innate immune system. And then this, this leaves all of the cell debris around that then stimulates an adaptive immune response. So B cells and T cells start to try and clear up this mess. And in doing so, they develop a number of autoantibodies, which can then circulate 
circulate around the body, form immune complexes, depose themselves within various tissues, and that's where the symptoms of lupus come from, or, or, or so that's the current thinking. Immunometabolism is, is actually a really interesting area, and obviously I'm conflicted and would say that with, you know, that being one of my main areas of, of research interests. But it's a relatively new area that has been um, evolving out over the last decade or so, looking at the changes in bioenergetics of immune cells in a number of conditions. And this was first of all looked at in cancer. So cancers can secrete a number of chemicals that dampen down the metabolism of the immune system and kind of switch off immune cells that would be scavenging and looking to clear a cancer. So there's a lot of research in the area of cancer as to whether we could change the metabolism of immune cells to make them slightly better at, at killing cancer. And then there was a growing area looking in the areas of uh, chronic infection like hepatitis. Uh, and now there's more of a move to look at this in conditions with an autoimmune component such as lupus. And what we're seeing is that there are a whole host of immune cells cells involved in the pathogenesis of lupus, as I kind of alluded to, and the way that those cells behave in terms of making energy and which pathways they use to make energy is really important. And I think kind of the, the reason that I find this really interesting is many of the treatments that we give for lupus are broad immunosuppressives. So we give a treatment it suppresses the immune system and then there's a risk of infections and things like this but in terms of immunometabolism if you can alter the way that the cell is making energy to rebalance its homeostasis then potentially you could give a treatment that will restore the immune system to a more normal playing field but without impacting the level that you've essentially left the defenses down and at risk of infection okay well let, let's go sideways and we're going to come back to treatments in a bit but you know, I, I, I like to say that there's the disease, there's the, the actual abnormality that leads to the symptoms. And then there's the dis-ease mm. of living, especially with a chronic condition, that it changes one's neuropsychiatric, mental health. So talk to us about SLE and those, those elements. Sure. So this is an area that's really kind of a growing interest for me in that it's something that I've been very fortunate to be involved in in a large research project with. And again, it's, it's like I mentioned with fatigue. It was a question that patients are asking a lot about in clinic. And I felt rather embarrassed that we couldn't really give a coherent or correct answer. So neuropsychiatric lupus and mental health in lupus is an area that has probably been poorly understood and to some degree possibly overlooked um, and is still overlooked. Now, we know that this may come about for possible two reasons, broadly speaking. So number one, neuropsychiatric lupus refers to inflammation within the nervous system, whether that's the central nervous system or peripheral nervous system. And the American College of Rheumatology have proposed a number of ways in which this can present. Uh, and to give you an idea of the scope of this category, this can be patients with a peripheral neuropathy, so uh, pins and needles or, or abnormal nerve conduction studies, and can range to, to symptoms such as psychosis and seizures. So that all comes under one large umbrella. And that means that studies into this area are often uh, quite poorly done to some degree in that when you're looking at such broad symptoms that can range from headache to seizures, uh, from psychosis to neuropathy, it's very hard to get a flavor of these symptoms. And I do get the feeling that perhaps we are slightly underestimating them. 
And the, the reason I say that is we, we're doing some work at present with some excellent colleagues at the University of Cambridge and some patient engagement groups in Lupus UK, who are a wonderful charity. Uh, and we've been asking patients to rate whether they've ever had any of these symptoms that are related to what we term neuropsychiatric lupus, but also some other mental health problems. And we're also comparing that against the guesses of the prevalence of these symptoms by doctors uh, in rheumatology, neurology, and psychiatry. And essentially what we found from our preliminary results, which we hope to be able to publish very soon, is that we are hugely underestimating these symptoms. And as such, you know, we're, start, we're starting to ask more about this uh, as a result of these results that, I, the, that we've seen in clinical practice. And that is backing up some of the things that we're seeing and, and makes, it's really made me realize that this is an underappreciated area that we are, we are pretty ill-equipped at dealing with. We need to find better ways of managing it. So that's where you, you have symptoms that may be due to active inflammation from uncontrolled lupus. But then we also have other mental health symptoms where it's slightly harder to pull apart. Um, it, for example, uh, many people think about fatigue and depression and say that those are linked, but it's often very hard to take those apart because if you have high levels of fatigue, that will likely have an adverse effect on mood. And similarly, is there a component of the low mood that may contribute to the depression and fatigue? And it's very hard to kind of pulling those apart. And that's what we're trying to start doing a bit more research on at the moment. Uh, we know that people with long-term illnesses, it can cause health anxiety, depression, and, and things like this. And we don't know how much of that is due to neurological inflammation or dealing with having a long-term illness. But if those symptoms are prevalent, we need to identify those, recognize those, and offer support for treatment. And so this is an area that we're looking to take forward um, with some, some really brilliant colleagues based here at King's and, and across the road at the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital, where we're looking to find out the prevalence of these symptoms in more detail, work out whether this is due to neurological inflammation or whether this is due to something else and find much better techniques for us doctors who are not used to talking about these symptoms to find a better way of managing them as a team of doctors rather than just feeling as a rheumatologist we, we don't know how to manage these things but actually pulling in other colleagues to help manage some of these symptoms. So it's an area that I think has, has probably been underestimated to some degree and I think that we may be able to produce some evidence to support that very soon when we publish our paper. Well, it's going to be great to see that. And there, is, there seems to be a growing awareness in, I remember, you know, with the, my practice in surgery and seeing patients with colorectal cancer, and especially if someone needed a colostomy, even a temporary colostomy, the impact on someone's self-esteem, self-worth, that was an issue. But then, of course, there's all the chemical things that you can have with various cancer syndromes where you've got lots of circulating nasties that can impact. Uh, in fact, once saw a, a chap who had visual and auditory hallucinations and turned out to have, I remember from medical school, who had uh, a lung cancer. And that was why he had his, uh, his psychiatric symptoms. Fascinating, fascinating field. Well, we've mentioned treatment a couple of times. Give us an overview, if you wouldn't mind, on the current treatment options for SLE and what the future might hold. Sure. So this is a really exciting area uh, and an area that perhaps we'll be having a different conversation about today compared with if we were to have this conversation 10 years ago. So uh, historically and upfront, many lupus trials failed. And this is because it's a very heterogeneous disease, very difficult to study. 
and therefore uh, we have a lot of drugs that we use on the basis of failed randomized controlled trial data. So open label studies will give us some indication that these treatments work, but we really needed to refine how these trials are done. And we're starting to see some promise. Uh, as a result, uh, you know, the medications we use are number one, hydroxychloroquine. It's an anti-malarial drug. It's been around for 50 years. We don't have a full understanding of how the drug works, but we know from large studies that if you're on hydroxychloroquine, no matter how bad your disease is, it seems to be better in the long run than if you're not on hydroxychloroquine. So we usually advocate that drug to everyone with lupus unless there's a contraindication. When the lupus is very active, we need to control the inflammation quickly to prevent damage. And so we'll usually use things like glucocorticoids, such as prednisolone, so these are great because they work very, very quickly, but if they're going on for too long, then these themselves can cause damage. So for example, diabetes, osteoporosis, cataracts. So we need other drugs to take over from the work that the prednisolone is doing in the longer term. And historically, we've used immunosuppressive medicines that were effective for a number of other autoimmune conditions, such as mycophenolate, azathioprine, methotrexate, and tacrolimus. When the lupus is severe, and if you have major disease within the kidneys, the brain, the heart, or the lungs, or if there are many systems that are active, we do have some therapy that's reserved for these more severe cases, uh, and that is in the form of cyclophosphamide, so an intravenous treatment, or a drug called rituximab, which uh, depletes B cells, which we think are the driver of lupus. Now, rituximab did fail in its two large trials, but a lot of the open label studies do show it to be effective. And we've seen it in many cases to be a very effective treatment. So until recently, those were broadly the options, but we have had some success with trials in recent years. About 10 years ago, the drug belimumab, which blocks BAF, which is a B-cell activating factor, was shown to be effective in lupus. And then a further trial showed it was effective in lupus nephritis in the kidneys. So we now have that drug available. And more recently, anaphrodite, which is an anti-interferon drug, has also shown good success in extrarenal lupus and is just becoming available at this time at the moment. Uh, I've had one patient who has been able to access the drug early and has had a good response to that. Um, and we will learn more about that drug and where these drugs have a place in the future of care of patients with lupus. And on the back of that success, there are a number of other trials targeting a number of other different pathways that are looking to see if we can have better effect in the management of lupus in the longer term. It's certainly, uh, you know, I'm not that old, but I, <laughs> it, it's dramatically changed from my dim and distant memories from medical school where, you know, it was, it was a very limited uh, um, palette of, of offerings. But you've mm -hmm. mentioned rituximab. You recently co-authored an article entitled Anti-Rituximab Antibodies, demonstrate neutralizing capacity associated with lower circulating drug levels and an earlier relapse. Well, I guess if, if there were antibodies to the rituximab, but that's to be expected. To tell us about that study. So this is, piece, this is a piece of work that I've spent a lot of time on and has become an interest of mine that's perhaps unrelated to my previous PhD research uh, and was slightly fortuitous uh, in that this project started a few years ago where someone approached me and said, we've, we've got all of this data on anti-drug antibodies in lupus. What do you think? Uh, and my initial proposal was, do these anti-drug antibodies to rituximab induce infusion reactions? So I took the, the data, I looked at the patients who'd received this, and we did see 
see that if patients had these anti-drug antibodies, they were likely to have a reaction to the drug in future. So that was interesting and we published that. And, and then the next question I had was, well, what impact does this have on care? Uh, and this confused me slightly because we know that rituximab is an antibody that attacks B cells, which makes antibodies, which cause autoantibodies in lupus. So if you're developing antibodies against the antibody drug, you've kind of got an anti-antibody, anti-antibody drug. And so it all got very, very confusing. And I, I kind of was started to speculate how these, how these antibodies could persist when they themselves were against a drug that was there to clear antibodies. So we then developed the, the study that relates to the publication that you describe, in which uh, I looked at patients who had had rituximab and then followed them up for a period of three years to see whether these antibodies persisted. And we found that they do indeed persist for up to three years, which was how long the, the study ran for. But also, we found that those antibodies did not affect how people responded to the treatment initially. But when they got to about six months, relapse rates were much higher in patients who had these anti-drug antibodies. And then some, some very clever colleagues in Sweden and France then took some of these antibodies and showed that they could neutralize the rituximab in the laboratory. So what we found was, or what we proposed as the likely mechanism, was these antibodies would generate in the few months after receiving treatment, that the response to treatment would be good, but then these patients would have an earlier relapse following the treatment due to much lower drug levels as a result of these antibodies neutralizing the drug. Uh, so these are not tests that are available in clinical practice, but we are, we're trying to argue that it might be useful if we could develop this assay for clinical use to predict who may have reactions to the treatment in the future, so to make the treatment more tolerable, and also to give us an idea of how long treatment is likely to be effective when we're starting someone on this therapy. So those were the, those were the main findings, and, and, and really, it was very interesting. It all started out from a spreadsheet that someone had in their desk that they kindly offered to me a number of years ago, and that's where this story really started. Okay, so I guess this is taking us down the path of precision medicine. Give us an eloquent uh, expose on the role of precision medicine in SLE. So, so I think this is probably where we're starting to head now. Um, so precision medicine is essentially looking at the thing that's causing the disease in the individual patient and treating that. Previously, when we had very limited treatment options, it was very much a case of, well, we will try what we have. And if that happens to be the thing that's driving your disease that we switch off, then you'll get better. But if your disease is being driven by something else that's not going to be switched off by this treatment, you won't improve and we'll try something else. And to some degree, that's currently where we still are. So we can speculate that certain drugs work in certain cases. For example, if you've got lupus in your kidney, you may benefit from this treatment, whereas if you've got lupus in your skin, you may benefit from this treatment. But it's still no exact science. And so precision medicine is where we'll have to think about going if we're going to have new drugs available. And as I mentioned, we're getting all of these new drugs that are starting to come through trials. Uh, this is something that happened in rheumatoid arthritis about 20 years ago, where suddenly you can block multiple different different cytokines and different inflammatory pathways. And so the question will be, well, what do you use for which patient? And I think this is a little bit more difficult than just saying you have lupus in your kidney, so use X, uh, or you have lupus in your skin, so use Y. I think immunologically, we see a number of different things happening in lupus. As I mentioned right at the start, you've got this abnormal innate immune response and then an abnormal adaptive immune, immune response with different B cells and T cells. And that can present clinically very much in the same way. But actually, 
is there a particular pathway that's better treated by different treatments? And as I mentioned, we've got drugs that take out B cells. So if you have a B cell driven disease, you should use that. We have a drug that targets interferon. So if you have interferon driven lupus, you should use that. And so maybe we'll start to find these biomarkers that will tell us the main driver and then match that with a, a treatment that will be more effective in that case. So that's probably where we'll be aiming in the future. And actually, this is a really interesting thing because we never would have been in this position had we not got the these new drugs starting to come through. So looking forwards, we may find that in the next 10 years, we have a few more agents become available. And then we'll have to decide where we use them, when we use them, who gets them, and whether we use them in combination. And I think precision medicine and finding those biomarkers will be the thing that drives that forwards. Yeah, again, I'm thinking of parallels like from the world of breast cancer, you know, estrogen receptors, uh, HER2 new receptors, and personalizing the treatment for the patient. And as we learn more, we can do more. It's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. During the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we heard a lot about the impact on people who were immunocompromised. So how does COVID-19 affect people with SLE? And how has the pandemic affected their lives downstream? Are you, for instance, seeing more cases of long COVID in patients with SLE? So this is something that we're starting to learn about. And I think about COVID, it feels like a very long time ago when when everything started. I was doing my PhD, I was in the lab every day, and suddenly I was back on the wards. And and I remember those early days where we didn't know much of what we were facing. We didn't have vaccines, we didn't have treatment. And so at that initial time, I know that a lot of rheumatology services and hospitals in general kind of closed, moved to telephone consultation, and we were telling people to shield. And patients with lupus who were on specific medicines, medicines that we commonly use in a number of autoimmune conditions, uh, were kind of being evaluated as in terms of risk for COVID. But it seemed to be the treatments for lupus that were slightly heavier immunosuppressive therapy that were the ones that people were nervous would, would mean a worse outcome if those people caught COVID when COVID first hit. So we very much kind of closed, moved to telephone appointments, and then tried to work out when it's safe to reopen as the waves started to settle. Uh, And so, number one, how did COVID affect people with lupus and rheumatic diseases? Well, as, as a clinician, I was slightly nervous that all of these patients who I'd been seeing in clinic every week were suddenly not coming to hospital and we were having to move everything to telephone, which has its benefits and its drawbacks. Uh, And so we did a a large study with with help of a number of charity partners and did an online survey of of 2000 people in the UK attending rheumatology clinics, not just with lupus, but with a number of rheumatic conditions to look at how actually their care was affected, first of all. So uh, we found that patients felt very nervous in these early stages. And I think we did this just as as the first wave of COVID uh, was starting to subside. And those patients were nervous about their following care. Many patients reported their follow-up being cancelled. Some said they didn't know when they would be seen again. Many said that they'd kind of make changes to their, their treatment because they were concerned they were on immunosuppressive medicine and they didn't know what effect COVID would have on that medicine. And to be honest, many of us doctors didn't know where the risk was highest. Uh, so so that was a piece of work that, that we presented at the British Society for Rheumatology a couple of years ago, essentially showing that there was a lot of anxiety about this. And interestingly, 
I was very adverse to telephone consultations back then, and I had the feeling that many patients were adverse to telephone consultations. But we asked, as part of that survey, what do you want going forwards? What do you want in the future for your care? Uh, And although many of them said they didn't like telephone appointments, they were keen for this more hybrid approach going forwards. So, so it's made us readdress the, the, the way that we care for, for patients now that perhaps cases of COVID are, are not so or not so frequently seen or maybe not so severe. In terms of the effect more globally, it made rheumatologists work in a very different way. We now are studying lupus and other autoimmune conditions very differently as a result of COVID and the implications for social distancing and lockdown. And I'm part of a, a research group that's globally looking at the effect of the impact of COVID, flares of COVID to try and answer these questions. And we're all working very globally, very separate from one another, researching together, having never met to try and answer questions such as what is the impact of COVID? What is the risks with treatment? Uh, And that is now starting to move on to look at are people at increased risk of conditions such as what's being termed long COVID with particular autoimmune conditions. Now, I don't think we've got enough information about that yet, but we'll hopefully be able to to do this through some of these large collaborative research projects. Yeah, well, I want to dig down a little bit deeper because I believe there's a body of evidence suggesting that mitochondrial dysfunction is at the root of long COVID. And I was just learning, courtesy of a friend, about urolithin A, a product of the gut microbiome, from eating foods like pomegranate and other red uh, red fruits, and that it might help. So what about foods that may be helpful or harmful to people living with SLE? There are all these so-called antioxidants and, and, and anti-inflammatory diets knocking about. What's real? What's pseudoscience? Great. So this this is a really interesting question and one that can sometimes be slightly triggering. So I will try and answer this as as best as possible. Um, So the role of diet, I think, is something very legitimate. We should say that up front and I'll come on to that a bit more. But at the moment, we don't have enough science to back this up. So we previously published on uh, when patients have reported that they found diets have helped them to feel better. But I wouldn't go any further than saying that if someone finds a diet that they find is helpful, for them uh, and that makes them feel better and it's a healthy diet that that's a good thing but I wouldn't be advising patients to go onto a specific diet to treat or cure their autoimmune condition and so the standard advice I give is eat a healthy diet there's a risk of heart disease with you know high doses of steroids there's a risk of cardiovascular disease with having a condition like lupus so what we typically say is a healthy Mediterranean diet not too much processed food and things like that and that that's kind of all we have in terms of guidance at the moment but the reason I say that this is an area that we may know more about and we certainly don't know much about at the moment is with regards to this role of microbiome. So there were some interesting studies in animals. Uh, I know that speaking with colleagues who were studying um, inflammatory arthritis in mouse models, that they would have a mouse model where they would inject with a substance and then the mouse would develop arthritis and then they could study arthritis. Then when they moved to another laboratory, they injected the mice, but in this occasion, the mice didn't develop arthritis and no one could really work out why suddenly these animal models of arthritis were not working. And what they realized was the food in the new laboratory was sterilized, whereas previously it hadn't been sterilized. And what was needed was the interaction of the injection they were giving 
and the bugs within the mice's stomach to develop the inflammatory arthritis symptoms. Now, it's very hard to kind of jump from animal models to human, but there is a growing body of evidence to say that there is differences within the microbiome, within the bugs that are within the gut, but also people are looking at it within the mouth, within skin flora and things like that. We've got to remember that those barrier surfaces are an important place of immune priming. So the bacteria within your gut interact with your immune system. And so work is growing to see whether there is something within the gut that increases the risk of autoimmune conditions or decreases the risk. Now, we're a long way from saying, take this diet, it will kill these bugs in your stomach and your immune system will get better. But there is growing evidence to look to see whether alterations within the microbiome, within the gut may help improve some of these symptoms. So I wouldn't go so far as to say, here is the diet that will fix lupus or any other autoimmune condition. But maybe in the future, as we learn more about this area, we may be able to give more specific advice in terms of dietary changes that may have a measurable effect on controlling disease. And I think that's a really interesting area. As, as many patients often report, they'd much rather change their diet than change their treatment. And there's possibly a number of reasons for that. But I think if we can get some more solid evidence, that will help us answer that question. And I'm always very reluctant when speaking to patients, and I often talk about this story of, of the mice and things like that, because there is a lot of pseudoscience out there where people very much say, change to this diet, stop all of your medicines, and your disease will get better. And we don't have evidence to support that. But if people want to make healthy lifestyle changes and continue with the treatment that we know that's effective, and that does make them feel better, then I'm very much in support of that. Right, yeah. And there is a benefit, of course, of people saying they feel better. You know, if, if a placebo works and makes people feel better, have at it. Absolutely. So talk to us a bit about the future of SLE and rheumatology in general. What are the latest and greatest advances in your specialty as, as it applies to, to SLE? Yeah, so I kind of caught the the bug for, for rheumatology as a medical student. And at that time, it was where we had all of these new drugs coming through for rheumatoid arthritis, these monoclonal antibody therapies that were very new and exciting back then. And interestingly, now, you know, 15, 20 years later, seem very much part and parcel of the furniture very common used frequently and you know it's hard to believe a time where those were seen as exciting so um those drugs those monoclonal antibody drugs really are the exciting future for for rheumatology and for lupus in, in my opinion we've seen it do great work for patients with rheumatoid arthritis many lupus doctors will often look at our colleagues working in rheumatoid arthritis and say they're very lucky to have all of these different drugs that can target different things different pathways if one doesn't Work, another can be used, but we may start getting there for, from a lupus perspective. So I think you know the great advent of these biologic monoclonal antibody therapies it has been absolutely huge for rheumatology, and, and the landscape has entirely changed as a result of this. Uh, it, we're still using fairly broad strokes with immunosuppressive medicine. But as we develop a better understanding of the disease and how to block the specific pathways without immunosuppressing everything else and be much more targeted in our approach, uh, I think that's where things are going to be really exciting in the future as we develop these new treatments that really lock down with less side effects, with less immunosuppression, but better control of the underlying disease process. So I think that that's the exciting achievements that we've seen in the last 20 years. 
and as we're knowing more and as things are developing more, we're seeing more and more of these drugs coming through. Uh, and hopefully it will be for a much wider range of the conditions that we treat in, the, in our clinical practice. And from a personal perspective, from a lupus point of view, I do hope there will be a day in the not too distant future where I'll be spoilt for choice in terms of drugs I can use rather than having to get the few that we know are relatively effective. That's fantastic. So tell me, if you had three wishes that could be granted by a magical genie, I love asking people this, that would, that would lead to advances in your specialty, what would they be? So, so I was thinking about this this morning prior to the interview and considering, you know, where, where the barriers are. Uh, you know, I, I've spent the, this time talking to you saying how exciting rheumatology is, how much more we know, how we're getting all of these new treatments. Um, so I think, you know, the first one that would really advance us would be knowing that a treatment works and is well tolerated. So giving a medicine to someone and being able to say to them with a huge degree of confidence, this will make you feel better you will feel better within this amount of time and your chances of side effects are very low. So if we had something like that, that would be, you know, one wish. I think the second wish would be kind of equality and equity of treatment. So we're very lucky that we have access to a lot of medicines here, but we're, I'm starting to do some research with colleagues around the world to assess uh, how lupus and autoimmune conditions are treated elsewhere. And it's great that we have all of these new drugs coming through, but if we don't have those drugs available to everyone, it's not going to be very fair. We're not going to make people better. We're not going to fix this disease if we're only treating it in places where the drugs are available. So my second wish would be that we have access to these medicines for everyone. And then my third wish is perhaps a little bit more of a, a practical one uh, and may, maybe thinking perhaps as, as I'm getting a bit older and looking back at what I've done before, uh, and that would be better access for junior doctors to, to research. So I'm still very fresh into my research career and not, not very far out from having got my PhD fellowship funding. But I speak to many, many very bright junior doctors who are put off in doing research because of worries of funding and worries of career pathways and trajectories. And as such, I worry we're going to lose some very, very bright people because the systems are very difficult. So my third wish would be that anyone that wants to do research, whether that's a doctor, a nurse, a physiotherapist, a pharmacist, that th if they want to be able to do it, then th there would be things in place that would allow them to, to kind of seek that out uh, and continue with that and continue to make the advances that, that I think we're starting to see and we could move at a much greater rate if people had more access to being able to do research and not have to have the worry of grants and, and the difficulty that sometimes comes with an academic career. You know, those are great perspectives, Chris. I, I was listening actually just yesterday to an American podcast and it was all about the career of a gentleman that I actually had the pleasure to meet, Senator William Proxmire. Proxmire, I think, was a good man and had a good heart. He used to hand out what he called the Golden Fleece Awards. And these were where he criticized government spending to support things. Well, it all sounds on the, you know, at the highest level, and especially if you're not fully informed about the complexities of science, like a very, very valid thing to have done until you dig in and realize that if he'd have had his way, basic research that eventually led to huge changes like, for instance, uh, refractive laser eye surgery would never, ever have happened. So I'm in favor of your suggestion. We need to democratize access to research, 
Having a curious mind is what makes us human. And in fact, it's one of my sign-offs. Talking of which, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. I want to thank you, Chris, for joining us today, for sharing your expertise, for everything you're doing for patients and the science of SLE. Dr. Chris Winkup, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. So folks, please subscribe to the EMJ podcast so you never miss an episode and check out the archives. There's lots of good stuff in there. Until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sack here. And as I said, stay safe, stay well, and here you go. Stay curious. Bye for now.